0: Father, we're thankful for today, thankful for this time of the year, uh, looking forward to celebrating the birth of your son. I do thank you for Sugarland Bible Church. I pray that you'll be with this church um, in everything it does today, from dawn till dusk, and I pray that your spirit would be involved directing and leading. And I pray when all is said and done today that your name would be glorified to prepare us for the ministry of illumination that you have for us. We're going to just take a few moments of silence to do personal confession before you. Not to restore position, but to restore broken fellowship if need be. We're thankful, Lord, for the comprehensiveness of our provision that you've given us in grace, including 1 John chapter 1 verse 9. I do pray that you be with us now as we study together and we ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. All right. Well, good morning. Excuse me. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for the cool weather, whoever put that order in. I appreciate that. Let's open our Bibles to Second Thessalonians, chapter 2 and verse 3. In Sunday school, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Second Thessalonians. Um, as you know, Paul the apostle has planted that church there in Thessalonica on missionary journey number two. Uh, that's the air, that's the circle up north. And as typically happened to Paul, given his effectiveness in ministry, um, unbelieving Jews in the area became jealous of Paul. Drove him out of Thessalonica, and he went down into Corinth, down south there, the circle below. And it's when he's in Corinth, still on missionary journey two, that he gets a a, uh, some kind of correspondence from the Thessalonians indicating a problem. And the problem is stated in verse 2 of Second Thessalonians. Paul says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us. So it this letter they received hadn't come from Paul to the effect that the day of the Lord or the tribulation period has come. So Paul had clearly taught them when you study First Thessalonians, that they were in the church age and the next event that they would see would be the rapture. But this forged letter came into their midst, um, indicating that they were now in the tribulation period and they had missed the rapture. So as verse 2 says, they were really shaken by this. So what Paul is doing in this paragraph, verses 3 through 12, which really is the heart of the letter, is he's offering them an explanation as to why they are not in the tribulation period. Therefore, take this forgery and d- discard it and go back to the doctrine you know, that I had taught you already. And what he lays out here in verses 3 through 12 is you're not in the day of the Lord or the tribulation period because there are not five things happening. Only when a person sees all five coming together in concert can they say they're in the tribulation period. So in the process, he gives a sketch, if you will, of what the tribulation period is going to look like that the Thessalonians will not see. The first thing you're going to see is the departure, and you'll notice I'm no longer translating this as the apostasy, but I'm translating this as the departure. Is this a departure from the word, or is this a departure from the world? And we've tried to lay out the case that this is actually speaking of a departure from the world. In other words, verse 3, the departure is a synonym for the rapture. And Paul's basically making a simple point that you're not in the day of the Lord because you're still here. If you were in the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, the departure would have already happened. And he lays out, and we've talked through this over the course of about nine weeks, uh, ten reasons why that departure from the world uh, is a better understanding. So I'm not going to, I know this is going to break your heart, but I'm not going to share those again today. Um, there is a little booklet at the back table that you can get to read up on those. From there, he went into the, uh, or we went into the basic, objections that people raise against the physical departure view. Most people don't interpret this as a departure from the world. They interpret it as a departure from the word. And let me just return really fast to this fifth one. People are saying that if the view that I've been teaching is correct, then what the Bible says is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. And so they think it's uh an internal contradiction. And when they do this, they rely upon the New King James Version, which takes the day of the Lord and translates it as the day of Christ. And almost everybody that raises this objection is always going to rely on the King James Version. The King James Version is one of the few translations that will interpret this or translate it as the day of Christ rather than the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, tribulation period, day of Christ could be the rapture. And so what they try to do is they try to point out a, a internal contradiction. So the King James Version says, Not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit, word, or letter, as they from us as though... The day of Christ, and in brackets I put the rapture, had come. Let no man, let no man deceive you by any means for that day, which would go back to the day of Christ, the rapture. For that day shall not come unless there come a falling away first. I'm understanding the falling away first as the rapture. And that the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And so what they say is, well, what you're saying is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens. Because that day refers to the rapture and the falling away refers to the rapture. And that's an internal contradiction. Um, What they're not telling you is other Bible English translations do not translate that expression, the day of the Lord, as the day of Christ, they interpret it as the tribulation period or the day of the Lord. So here's how it reads in the NASB, which completely changes the meaning. That you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed, either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord, the tribulation period, has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it, the tribulation period, will not come unless the uh, apostasy, departure, or rapture comes first. So if you're reading this from the NKJV, there is a contradiction. The rapture can't happen until the rapture happens, but the contradiction disappears when you're reading from the NASB. Because the NASB does not use the expression, the day of Christ, it uses the expression, the day of the Lord. For it, tribulation period, day of the Lord, will not come unless the rapture happens first. So when you go with the NASB and most English translations, the so-called contradiction that people want to put into this verse disappears. So, um, one of the things to understand about the King James Version, it's a very good translation. But just like other translations, it's a work of man. And it kind of revolves around what's called majority text. We don't have the original Greek manuscripts. We have copies of them. And those Greek manuscripts all agree with each other like 99.9% of the time. There are situations though where the manuscripts can contradict each other. They never contradict each other in the area of cardinal Christian doctrine, but there are contradictions in very small number of cases. So the goal of text criticism, which is a whole science and art that people give themselves to, is when such a contradiction exists, you're trying to figure out which manuscript better reflects the original. And we don't have the original. <laughs> so it's sort of a guessing game. And there's different schools of thought on it. Uh, one school of thought the King James Version, says you go with the majority of manuscripts. That's the correct reading. Another school of thought, like the New American Standard Bible, is say, no, you go with the earliest. So um, the reason that the NASB says what it says is the earlier manuscripts um, translate this as the day of the Lord, not the day of Christ. There are other manuscripts, sometimes later, that sometimes happen to be in the majority, that will translate this as the day of Christ rather than the day of the Lord. So that's just kind of a crash course on text criticism. But when people just kind of get on their podcasts and interviews and just kind of spout off this, contention that the physical departure view is wrong because what they're saying is the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens, They're, they're totally relying on the King James version and its interpretation or handling of text criticism. They're not even making their listeners aware that there's other possibilities So when you hear this contention, well the rapture can't happen until the rapture happens, you have to understand that it's coming from people that are, that are kind of locked in on the King James Version. In other English translations it reads completely differently and the contradiction disappears. So I just bring that to your attention because I went through it really, really fast. Uh, I don't think in the detail that I'm giving you right here at the end of the last session. So what is the BLT, you know, bottom line time? Um, I'm convinced, although I'm in a minority on this, that the correct understanding of verse 3, the word apostasia, translated apostasy, I'm convinced that you should cross out the word apostasy and you should put in its place the departure. That's how every English translation handled this prior to the Reims Bible, which is a Roman Catholic translation, and prior to the King James, which was reacting against the Reims. So when people are convinced that this means something spiritual, they're actually following a Roman Catholic English translation without even realizing it, the Reims Bible. I love the King James Bible, but I think this is a place where it didn't get it right. No English translation completely gets everything right. I'm convinced it doesn't mean rebellion. It doesn't mean apostasy. Uh, You can just scratch those words out and what it means is the departure. And I've given you ten reasons why the departure is a synonym for the rapture. So Paul's point is you're not in the day of the Lord, i.e. the tribulation period, because you're still here. And it would have been great if Paul had just said it that way. (laughs) Um, But I think that's what he's saying here. So dump the forgery. Uh, You're not in the day of the Lord because you're still here. That's his first reason. And it took nine weeks to get through that first reason. I think these other ones will go by a little faster. The second reason you're not in the day of the Lord, second part of verse 3 into verse 4, is you have not seen the rise of the lawless one or the Antichrist. So we had a chance to kind of work from apostasia, uh, departure, forward, making some points about the antichrist, how he will be a man of lawlessness, and he will be revealed. Uh, Apocalypse. Um, it's the same root word, therefore revealed, as the book of Revelation. The title for the book of Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 1, the disclosure, just as uh, God disclosed to John, he unveiled to him the book of Revelation. The Antichrist is going to be disclosed to the world at just the right time. Because right now, Paul says he can't be disclosed. Why can't he be disclosed? verses 6 and 7, because something is hindering him currently. And we'll unpack the meaning of that um, a little bit later in the series. But as we were trying to sort of figure out what verse 3 is talking about concerning the Antichrist, we didn't, we didn't have a chance to get to his title <clears throat> that I have underlined here in verse 3, Son of Destruction. Uh, some of your versions, English versions say son of perdition. Why is he called the son of destruction? Because Jesus is going to personally overthrow him. Where do we see that? Look at verse 8. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. In other words, this man is called the son of perdition, the son of destruction, because he is marked for destruction. Yes, he's going to cause a lot of trouble on the world scene, but he is marked for destruction because prophecy indicates that he will be personally overthrown by Jesus when Jesus returns from heaven to the earth at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And if you want to see exactly how Jesus is going to do this, all you do is slip over to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, which is his second advent. And if you look at verse 20, uh, this is what Jesus does when he comes back. Actually, let's start with verse 19, Revelation 19. I saw the beast, that's the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and the armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So he's actually going out trying to fight Jesus, which I don't think is the smartest thing a person can do. Verse 20, and the beast, that's our guy, was seized and with him, the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two, this is Antichrist and henchman, beast and false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Now, Satan, at this point, is not thrown into the lake of fire. He has one more purpose, uh, to deceive the nations at the end of the millennial kingdom. But after that takes place, if you look at Revelation 20, verse 10, it says the devil. See how we're dealing with a, a trinity here? We have the our trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Satan counterfeits everything God does. So his trinity is beast, Antichrist, Satan. And the trinity can't be divided, so we've got to figure out a way to get the devil to where the beast and the false prophet already are forever. And that happens at the end of the thousand years. It says the devil was this, uh, who, who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. See that? They're still in there. Even though a thousand years have elapsed. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is why going back to 2 Thessalonians 2.3, the coming lawless one is called the son of perdition or the son of destruction because that's his future. His future is to be personally overthrown by Jesus at his second advent and then thrown into the lake of fire with the the false prophet and later Satan uh, forever and ever, the son of destruction, destined for destruction. So... Sometimes when you study prophecy and you read all these books about the Antichrist and the New World Order, you know, everybody gets real worried and nervous because those things to us are pretty overwhelming. But you always have to look at those things in light of the totality of God's Word. The totality of God's Word is, yes, Satan gets his day in the sun, but it's temporary. (laughs) If I'm reading my Bible right, it's only going to last 42 months. I mean, here he's been plotting all these centuries to take over the world, and he gets a lousy 42 months. Uh, Revelation 13, verse 5 gives you that 42-month figure. It's half of the tribulation period. And then after that, it's over in torment forever. So, yeah, the new world order, Antichrist, um is a depressing subject until you look at it from the totality of what God says. That the Antichrist, as formidable as a foe as he is, is actually the son of destruction. He's marked for destruction. He's a defeated foe. Uh, he's going down, in other words. It's like that movie. I can't remember the name of it, but a, a guy is talking to, I think Dennis Quaid is in the movie, he's talking to his son, if I remember the movie right, uh, and oh, oh, and they're, they're bridging time, so his son is trying to catch a, a bad guy, and the father in the future is giving him tips on how to catch the bad guys, does that does that uh, movie ring a bell, I don't remember the title of it, Frequency, Frequency there we go. You guys are demonstrating your knowledge of Hollywood. That's good. All right. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's a fascinating movie. And then at one point, um, I think it's the son sits down with this guy that's a criminal. And they're sitting next to each other, I think, at a restaurant or at a bar or lunch counter or something like that. And the guy says to the criminal, you went down 20 years ago. I think it's 20 years. You went down decades ago. You just don't know it yet. And um, that's kind of the way I think about the Antichrist. He he went down a long time ago. He just doesn't realize the full impact of his sentence. And so that's how to understand the doctrine of the Antichrist. This is how you can study prophecy and not get out of whack with it. Because after all, prophecy is there to reveal Jesus, right? Remember Revelation 19, verse 10? For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of, the, of prophecy. So if you're on all these YouTube channels and websites and reading all these books and you're sort of ODing, overdosing on Antichrist doctrine, and getting real nervous about it and getting worked up about it, you're sort of at a place that's disproportionate than where God would have you. I mean, it's important to understand all this stuff, but I know people that have made a career out of teaching on these subjects and writing books on these subjects and really putting people into a perpetual state of fear where where God is saying, know about these things, but at the same time, don't lose sight of the big picture. I'm the creator. I've got this whole thing under control. These entities went down a long time ago. They just don't know it yet. And so he is marked for destruction. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27 of the Antichrist. We're going to be coming back to this verse in just a little bit, so I won't read it all to you. But it says, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed on the one who makes desolate. So God is going to desolate the desolator. The desolator is the Antichrist. That's why he's called this man of son of perdition, son of destruction. So uh did you guys do your homework assignment? I know some of you did because you told me the answer. Uh, last Sunday, but I said, who else in the Bible? I mean, there's a two part question. Um, there's a who there's a what who question and there's a why question. The who question is, who else in the Bible is called the son of destruction? And the answer is Judas. She was the first one here. The the, the A students always sit in the front. She was the first one to say, it's Judas. And she's right. Judas is the only other man in the Bible that has this same title, Son of Destruction. Um, did you know the Bible verses where we could find that? John, Uh it's in John 17, verse 12. This is Christ's high priestly prayer, Uh the true Lord's Prayer, not the one that we falsely call the Lord's Prayer where he's teaching his disciples to pray, Matthew 6. This is really his prayer. And it spans um, a whole chapter. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and he prays for the future church. Prays for himself, verses 1 through 5. This is what he was doing on Passion Week prior to his crucifixion. Prays for himself, verses 1 through 5. Prays for the eleven. Because Judas has left the room, verses 6 through 19. Then he starts praying for us, the future church that would be impacted by the disciples, verses 20 through 26. And so as he's praying for the disciples, he makes this statement in verse 12 of John 17. He says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. Not one of them perished, but the son of perdition so that the Scripture would be fulfilled. So he goes, I've kept all of you except the the one that never believed in me, and that's Judas. And then he calls Judas here the son of perdition. It's the exact same title given to the Antichrist. So does anybody know... Why both men, Judas and Antichrist, are called the son of perdition or the son of destruction? Um, There's probably different answers to it. But my answer is they will be the only two men in human history that we know about directly from the Bible that will be possessed by Satan himself. Um, John 13, verse 27, as Judas is contemplating betraying Christ. And this is how we know that Judas was unsaved. It says, after the morsel, these are really frightening words when you think about this. Satan then entered into him. The In other words, Satan went inside of Judas, satanic possession of a human being. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. So Judas was unique in the sense that his body was actually indwelt by the devil for for a time. And I am of the persuasion that the Antichrist is called by that same title because Satan will do the same thing with the Antichrist. He will actually go inside of him. Um, does it say that directly? No, but it's sort of there by inference. We know that the dragon is the devil. Revelation chapter 20 verse two says, and he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9 says, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who was called the devil and Satan. So those are all descriptions of Satan as the dragon. But then you get to Revelation 13, verse 4. And it says, they, that's the earth dwellers on the earth at the time these prophecies are fulfilled. They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worship the beast saying who is like the beast who is able to wage war against him. So at this particular point in history, and I would think it happens uh, right after the temple is desecrated, which will be the subject of the next verse, verse four. Satan loses access to heaven forever. You say, well, I thought Satan already fell from heaven. Yes, he did. But he still has the capacity to go into heaven, not to uh, minister and worship as he once did as a high-ranking angel, but to communicate and accuse. And if you don't believe that's true, just read Job chapters 1 and 2. Says it very clearly. Once the temple is desecrated, and I'm getting this from Revelation chapter 12, really verse 6 through the end of the chapter, verses 6 through 17, once the temple is desecrated by the beast, it's at that point that Satan plummets to the earth, and John says, woe to the inhabitants of the earth, because Satan is coming down to you with great wrath. Satan loses access to God's throne forever. And I think it's at that point he actually goes inside the beast or the Antichrist. And so the beast or the Antichrist is really Satan's tool that he's trying to use to exterminate the Jewish nation in the final 42 months of the tribulation period. Because Satan knows that the kingdom is going to be birthed through the Jewish nation. And so what better way to prevent that from happening in his twisted logic than to destroy the Jewish nation? So once the temple is desecrated, Satan plummets to the earth. And I think it's at that point he actually goes inside the Antichrist and he possesses him just like he possessed Judas. And I'm getting that because it says there in Revelation 13, verse 4, the world, when it sees the beast, is going to worship the beast, but the world itself is going to see the satanic power indwelling the beast. And they're also going to worship the devil himself. So they're worshiping the beast and the devil because it's a package deal. Um, Because at this point, the devil is now inside uh, the Antichrist, just as the devil went inside of Judas. So one of the things to understand about Satan is he is not omnipresent. He's not like God. He can't be everywhere at once. So he orchestrates the world system through fallen angelic beings. The third that originally fell with him. Uh, we would call them, I would think, demons. And those are the, those are the entities he typically dispatches to do his pro, his, uh, his work. So Paul himself, 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, suffered from a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. He doesn't say I was suffering from Satan. He says I was suffering from one of his messengers. So when we are under spiritual attack, um, we have a tendency to think a little bit more highly of ourselves, you know, than we ought, and we think Satan is really out to get me today. Well, I don't mean to burst anybody's bubble, but it probably wasn't Satan. He just dispatches the lower-ranking guys to deal with us. He steps in for the big projects. And big project A was the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. So Satan says, my my minions are not going to handle this one. I'll handle it. And he went inside of Judas. And when it comes time to eradicate the Jews in the final 42 months of the tribulation period, Satan says, that's that's too big a project for anybody else. I'm going to handle this one. And it's at that point he'll actually go inside of the Antichrist and possess him just like he possessed Judas. And I think that's the reason why only these two men, Judas and Antichrist, are called the son of uh, perdition. Because who is the Antichrist? <clears throat> the Antichrist is, is Satan's masterpiece. I mean, he's been waiting uh, millennia to unveil this guy. And once the restrainer is gone, he gets his opportunity. And if you look down at verse 9, it says, of the coming Antichrist, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, watch this, with all power and signs and false wonders. So the Antichrist, the lawless one, is Satan's masterpiece Satan's man of the hour, and that's why I think he actually goes inside of him, just like he went inside of Judas. Which makes you grateful for the fact that when you came to Christ, your body became the temple of the Holy Spirit forever. John 14, verses 16 through 18 says that. Which means Satan can't come inside of us. If he wanted to. Why is that? Because God and Satan can't be roommates. They'd be lousy roommates. A demon can't come inside of you. Why? Because a demon and the Holy Spirit can't be roommates. Now, if your body is not the temple of the Holy Spirit, then there's nothing really that can stop a demon or Satan from possessing somebody. But he cannot possess a Christian. Can he oppress a Christian? Absolutely. He can discourage. He can try to influence. He'll take whatever ground we give him, particularly if we yield to the sin nature. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, do not let the sun go down on your anger lest you give the devil a foothold. I mean, he can take footholds in our lives like with Ananias and Sapphira and, Acts chapter 5, and he can try to influence us for his purposes. He actually does this with Christians all the time. They just don't have enough teaching on angelology, satanology, demonology to know when it's happening. But it's a biblical concept. But he cannot take over your life in the, in the sense of a, a permanent possession like he's going to do with Judas and also with the beast. This, by the way, is one of the reasons why Judas could not have been saved. There's a lot of people out there trying to argue that Judas was saved. No, he was not saved. (laughs) Uh, If he was saved, Satan could not go right inside of him like that. Uh, At the end of John 6, around verse 70, and the verses that precede it, you'll see that Judas never believed. Unlike the other disciples who believed, Judas never did. He kind of hung around because he thought the kingdom was going to come fast and he was going to get a ground floor position in the kingdom. But um, uh, he was never regenerated. In fact, Jesus says of Judas, I think it's in Matthew 26, he says of Judas, it'd be better for him if he had never been born. That's a very strange way to refer <laughs> refer to a believer. And when uh, uh, J- uh, Judas committed suicide and his body kind of, um, if you put the facts together, I think what Judas did is he hung himself on a tree perhaps the tree branch was over a cliff and he died, you know, suicide. Um, when he, well, I think what happened is the branch eventually broke and his body spilled over the ravine. And as his body was tumbling down the ravine, the jagged rocks tore him open and his intestines gushed out. And who would tell us that other than a doctor, right? Right. Dr. Luke is the one that tells us about that, a physician. Luke is called a physician in uh, Colossians 4, I think it's verse 14. But as it's describing um, Judas's suicide, it, it basically says he went to his own place, which is a really weird way to describe a believer. I don't think suicide, suicide's a terrible thing, but it's not the unpardonable sin. Even a Christian that commits suicide goes into the presence of the Lord because we're covered by grace. Absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. It doesn't say anything like that in Acts chapter 1. It just says Judas went to his own place. So you put all this data together and you can clearly see that Judas was never regenerated. That's why he had to be placed with Matthias so we can get the number back up to 12 um, in Acts chapter 1. So all of that to say, Judas was unsaved. Satan went into him. Only Judas and the Antichrist are called the son of destruction because those are the only two men that we know of in the Bible where Satan actually is going to go into them to step in. For a big league job. Big league job A, betrayal of Christ. Big league job B, eradicate the Jewish nation. The woman clothed with the sun and the moon and the twelve stars during the second half of the tribulation period. So look at that. We made it out of verse three. Verse four. Continuing to describe the Antichrist, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. That's who the Antichrist is. He promotes himself above everything. There's a parallel passage in Daniel chapter 11 verse 36 speaking also of the Antichrist. It says, The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god. That's what verse 4 is saying also. Which leads me to the conclusion that the Antichrist cannot be Muslim. There's a lot of people today writing books, Arguing that the Antichrist will be Islamic. You know, the Islamic Beast, the Mideast Beast, all of these book titles are coming out now with the resurgence of Islam, not only around the world, but here in the United States of America. And as you see that, there's a tendency to want to make every problem in the world associated with Islam. You know, they did this with the Pope too. The Pope has to be the Antichrist because there was a resurgence of Roman Catholicism uh, when John F. Kennedy was running for president, you remember? And he was Roman Catholic and people were afraid that he was going to have more allegiance to Vatican City than to the United States. What is that, 1960, something like that? Six years before I was, was even born. What do I know about it? But if you look at book titles, a lot of people during that era were saying the Pope is the Antichrist. So it's kind of like whatever big threat there is out there, let's just turn the, the ultimate villain into the Antichrist. And so that's what people are doing with Islam. They're trying to make it sound like the Antichrist must be Islamic. He cannot be Islamic because Daniel 11 verse 36 and verse 4 says he will exalt himself above every so-called God or object of worship. A Muslim is never going to put himself above Allah. So this can't be describing an Islamic antichrist. Now, don't get me wrong. Islam has a huge role to play in the end time scenario. Um, I wrote a little book on this, if you're interested, called The Middle East Meltdown, Ezekiel 38 and 39. We actually taught this as a series here. I think it was a series we taught before we started the Thessalonian letters. Where the different players in the Gog-Magog invasion are identified. Ezekiel 38 and 39, uh, Libya, Sudan, Iran. Central Asia, Russia, and Turkey. And what do every single one of them have in common other than Russia? They're all Islamic. You know, Islam is sort of the tie that binds that part of the world. And I'm of the persuasion that that's why these nations invade Israel in the last days. Because to Islamic thinking, Jerusalem is a holy site. The Temple Mount is a holy site because that's where um, Muhammad allegedly ascended back to Allah on a horse. And you all know the name of the horse, right? The horse's name is Barak. (laughs) So that's where that ascension allegedly occurred. So that's why they're going to invade Israel because Israel's possession of the Temple Mount is looked at as a usurper. When my wife and I got married, and by the way, we're coming up on uh, 25 years. Can you believe that? Wow. So she has a lot of patience, I'll tell you that much. But when we got married, we went to the, um, you know, as our honeymoon, we went to Israel. Um, I don't think the best place in hindsight for a honeymoon, but... But um, wonderful place. Other than that, because you're walking all the time and you're so tired, you know. I don't. I won't fill in any more details. But we should have gone kind of the easier route, I guess. But but anyway, that's just TMI. TMI. Too much information. Um, So there, there we are. And this is when they let you up there um, with your Bible. And there we were holding hands on the temple mount. And all of a sudden we heard this voice saying, don't touch, don't touch. And then he started saying, holy sight, holy sight, don't touch. And we're like holding hands saying, what is he talking about? Don't touch what? We thought he meant don't touch the walls or something. And finally we figured out he was saying, don't touch each other. And once we figure that out, we're like, oh, geez, you get over there. I'll stay over here. (laughs) But um, that's how they look at that temple mount. They look at it as their temple mount. And so that's why Islam furnishes the perfect motivation for all of these players described by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So I'm not saying that Islam doesn't have a major role to play in the end time scenario. I just don't think the Antichrist will be Muslim. Because he is going to put himself above every god, and a Muslim would never put himself um, over Allah. If you want to know a little bit about the Antichrist, he is going to be Roman in origin. Daniel chapter 9 verse 26 says he, that's the Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. The many is Israel. This is what starts the tribulation period after the church has been raptured. A lot of people think the rapture or the departure starts the tribulation period. That's not exactly correct. The rapture of the church, as I'll explain when we get to verse 6 and 7, releases the restrainer. There's nothing left holding back the man of sin. So he is revealed in his right time. And as he comes forward, he enters into the deal of the century with Israel, guaranteeing her peace and protection. It's not like Israel's looking for that today, right? Right? I mean, they're looking for anybody to come over there and fix this. They're going to get their wish in the person of the Antichrist, having rejected nationally Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. I mean, Jesus said in John 5 uh, concerning the nation of Israel, I came in my own name and you would not receive me. But if someone comes in his own name, Him you will receive. Referring to Israel actually reaching out to Antichrist for their protection. And they're going to get a tough lesson because he's going to betray them. Politicians never go back on their word, do they? Um, He's going to betray them three and a half years into the process. And that's what's going to wake them up. That this guy we've been following is not our guy. Our guy came 2,000 years ago. And so the Lord is going to use these events to bring Israel, an unbelieving nation, bring them into the fold as a believing nation. But the he is a reference to the Antichrist. And when you see a he, you always want to back up to the nearest antecedent to figure out who the he is talking about. And verse 26 comes before verse 27. Do you guys agree with that logic? Verse 26, then comes verse 27. So if I'm seeing the pronoun in verse 27 and I want to figure out what the pronoun is identifying, I need to back up to the nearest antecedent in verse 26. So the nearest antecedent is Titus of Rome in the prophecy. It was predicted there, the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with a flood. That is Daniel predicting what would happen to the Jewish nation as a consequence of them rejecting their Messiah. The penalty would be the horrific events of A.D. 70. Where Titus of Rome would come, Josephus talks all about it, and kill over a million Jews. They built a, a barricade, Around the city of Jerusalem, so that they, the Jews could not get out, and they just killed him in a mass horrific style. They even tore open the wombs of pregnant Jewish women to strangle the child within within them, so that the name of Israel would be blotted out forever. Daniel predicted that that would be the consequence of the nation rejecting their own king because Israel is now under the covenant curses. Deuteronomy 28, penalties for disobedience. Moses, all the way back in Deuteronomy 28, said all these things would happen. That's why Jesus on Palm Sunday is weeping. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday to the right day according to Daniel 9:25 and he's crying why is he crying because he knows what the prophecy says he knows they're going to reject him and they're going to suffer this consequence the consequence was introduced by this Titus of Rome Titus of Rome AD 70 is the nearest antecedent to the he of verse 27 and so if you want to understand what the Antichrist is going to be like, you just look at Titus of Rome. Titus of Rome came from Rome. So I would guess based on that, that when the Antichrist comes to power, he will arise in Rome. He's not coming from some Islamic country. He's coming from a uh, Eurocentric New World Order. Uh, a, A New World Order that arises out of the cultural inheritance of ancient Rome. And we get that teaching from Daniel 2, the statue. The legs of iron represent Rome. Rome passed. The feet, ten toes, mixed with iron and clay, represent the new world order yet future that the Antichrist will preside over, a ten king confederation that will eventually envelop all of planet Earth. I would argue that we're watching it being built daily. And here's the fun fact to understand, the feet are connected to the legs. You guys agree with that logic? I mean, this is cutting-edge stuff right here. Verse 26 comes before verse 27, and feet are connected to the legs. If the legs represent ancient Rome, probably it's eastern and western divisions, that's why there's two legs, then the feet connected to the legs represents a future empire also arising out of ancient Rome. So what you see in Scripture is Titus is used by Daniel as a prefigurement of the coming Antichrist. Now there's another prefigurement I'm going to give you if we ever are able to complete verse 4 today. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. But push push that out of your mind just for a second. The first prefigurement is Titus of Rome because the he goes back to verse 26 which mentions Titus of Rome. If you want to understand the future antichrist, you have to understand Titus of Rome. Where he came from, what his mindset was like. He is used as a as a type or as a foreshadowing of what the future antichrist will do. Which means that the future antichrist not only will he not be islamic But he will not be Jewish. Many, many people have speculated over the years that the Antichrist must be Jewish. Because only the nation of Israel would trust a fellow Jew to enter into a treaty. Um, I'm here to tell you that the future Antichrist will not be Jewish. He will be a Gentile. How do I know that? Because his prefigurements. Deliberately set up by Daniel are Gentiles. Titus was a Gentile, not a Jew. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Gentile, not a Jew. If you look at Revelation 13 verse 1, it says the dragon stood on the seashore That's Satan, right? The dragon. Then I saw a beast. There's our guy, the Antichrist. Coming up out of the sea. Having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were seven diadems. And on his heads were blasphemous names. Notice that he's arising out of the sea. Well, in the book of Revelation, what's the sea? The sea represents the great mass in symbolic language of humanity. Revelation 17, verse 15, about the harlot sitting on the waters. He said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, not ethnic Israel, peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So in heavily symbolic material like the book of Revelation, you run into the sea. It typically refers to the great mass of humanity. And because the Antichrist is arising out of the sea, it's indicative of the fact that he will be Gentile and not Jewish. Isaiah 57 verses 20 and 21 says, but the wicked are like the tossing of the sea for it cannot be quiet and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace says my God for the wicked. So the, the great block of Gentile humanity in its wickedness is analogized to the sea and that's who the Antichrist arises up from within. Now his associate, his colleague, his henchman, the false prophet, I think, will be Jewish. So if you want to understand how a Jewish nation could enter into the deal of the century um, with a Gentile, I think part of it involves the false prophet, who is Jewish, is talking Israel into the deal. Because the false prophet is working alongside the Antichrist. So there's a way to explain why Israel would enter into this deal with the Gentile when you understand that his closest associate is Jewish. How do I know, why do I think this? Revelation 13 verse 11 is why I think it. Then I saw another beast, now that's the false prophet, coming up out of the, what does it say? The Earth and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. so the beast comes out of the sea, Gentile. the false prophet comes out of the earth, Jewish. Why do I think the Earth refers to Jewishness because it's a little Greek word um, it's if you were to transliterate it into English, it would be like a G and an E. That's where we get the word geography from. Just a G and an E. Ge, I think is how you say that. And when you start tracking that word through the New Testament, what you'll discover is it's used many, many times to refer to the land. The land of Israel. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 2 verse 20. Which is a great passage for Christmas time. Except on your Christmas cards, don't don't talk about all this stuff. They'll think you're crazy. Just 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 quote Matthew two twenty. But he says there, get up, take the child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel. So there's our little word G-E, ge, G-E For those who sought the child's life are dead. By the way, no extra charge for this. He doesn't say get up and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Palestine. Okay? Doesn't say go into the land of the West Bank. Those are all modern day made up terms. The Bible knows no other name for that area than the land of Israel. That's what you call it. You don't call it Palestine. It's an unbiblical and frankly anti-Semitic label. So because the false prophet is coming up out of the land, I think he will be Jewish. But the Antichrist coming up out of the sea will be Gentile. And he will oppose and exalt himself above every so-called object of worship, which means he cannot be Muslim. And then uh, the rest of verse 4, which we can't do today because we're out of time. If you understand verse 4, you'll be able to connect the dots with Hanukkah, which just started, right? So this is a perfect time of the year to be studying this. Where did Hanukkah come from? In fact, here's your homework assignment. You ready for this? How does Hanukkah, the events surrounding Hanukkah, prefigure the prophecy concerning the Antichrist taking his seat in the temple in verse 4. How does Hanukkah prefigure that? So there's your assignment. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your truth, grateful for your word, grateful for prophecy, grateful for this time of the year. Help us to keep things in the right perspective and not to become over out of balance on these things. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said. And happy intermission.